Greetings and welcome to SoundQuest. I'm your host, Alex Laggy, here with music director Matthew Troy. Classical music transforms ordinary moments into magnificent ones. We invite you to broaden your knowledge, increase your interest, and challenge your preconceptions of this great art form. Journey with us on the SoundQuest podcast. You're listening to the SoundQuest podcast. SoundQuest would like to thank the Western Piedmont Symphony. For more information, visit wpsymphony.org. O-R-G. And thanks for listening. So this is our first episode of SoundQuest. Welcome to the podcast. We are going to be exploring uh, many different topics through different series that we have created. But today, I have the privilege of speaking to music director and conductor Matthew Troy. Matthew, welcome to the program. Hey, Alex. Good to be with you. So happy you're here. So happy we're doing this. So um, I just thought it would be fitting to really just speak about the thing that you think about and do 24-7. And no, we're not discussing eating. (laughs) We're going to talk about conducting, of course. Uh, But yeah, I just, you know... I think conducting is fascinating. I think that there are so many preconceptions about what a conductor does, how they prepare, what they really do. I've heard people say, do they really need to follow his hand gestures? I mean, you know, does he need to be there? And um, the answer is yes, of course. But I'd love for you to elaborate on that. And I have some specific questions. But before we get into that, I wanted to just take a moment to tell you my first experience of actually seeing a conductor. It wasn't in a classical setting. It was in a jazz setting. And I, I took a, a woman that used to write for the uh, the jazz column of the LA Times, and she was probably in her 60s at the time. And I took her, uh, I drove her, because she couldn't drive at night, I drove her to a show, and she says, well, we're going to have a treat tonight. I said, why is that? You know, she's like, we're going to see Gerald Wilson, the great jazz um, orchestra uh, conductor. And I didn't know what to think of that. I just knew that he had a very white hair, and it was a very... Um, Uh, just intense looking gentleman. And she says, now, if you look closely enough, you're going to see lightning come out of that man. And I was just thrilled. And from that day on, when I look at it, when I go to a show, I know there's a conductor, that's who I look for. That's what I look for. So a little bit about (laughs) my past, but please describe the largest myths surrounding what conductors do versus what they really do. Well, it's good to be here. It's good to talk about this. This is something I do enjoy talking about a lot. And yes, I do agree. Sometimes I think of lightning coming from my hands. You know, at least that's a good visual. It kind of can be the right image that uh, I conjure up at a particular moment. But, um, you know, so usually when I like if I'm on a plane and I meet somebody and they say, what do you do for a living? You know, uh, there's usually a little bit of shock when I say I'm a conductor. Uh, sometimes I've had to explain, no, not on a train. You know, they think they Im- immediately <laughs> think, oh, you're a train conductor. And I'm saying, no, I'm not a train conductor. I'm a symphony conductor. So after we initially get over that hump, you know, um, yeah, they, they do often have a lot of misconceptions about what a conductor is. And they do also l- tend to look at me in a funny way because seeing a conductor apparently in real life sitting next to them is something that doesn't happen every day. So, um, yeah, I would say one of the myths is that, um, like you kind of alluded to, does the orchestra need me? Am I just there in almost like a ceremonial role or do I actually really have a function Mm -hmm. with the orchestra? And so that's explaining how that work, how orchestras communicate, because essentially it's a lot of nonverbal communication that occurs. And as a conductor, we have to spend years and years really working on our gestures and the motions that we do. 
um, to communicate what the intent of the music is. And so that's something that I think is just trying to explain in detail what the role of the conductor is, is one of those things. Um, I would say another myth is that um, it's uh, people have these images, and granted, this was a part of the persona that was cultivated over years and years with famous conductors like, I think, famously Arturo Toscanini, uh, who was just known to be a real tyrant on the podium. And so for a long time, people kind of had that dictatorial image in their head of who a conductor was. And um, it's not, it doesn't work that way in the year 2023 anymore, and nor should it work that way anymore. But I do think, yes, the conductor does need to be uh, in charge of things and needs to help guide the orchestra in, in many different ways. But the days of kind of the tyrant conductor are hopefully mostly behind us. Yes. Um, and so just kind of, I think, explaining that role uh, to people. And finally, I would just say really briefly is that uh, whereas the composer is a creative artist, the composer writing the music, um, looking at the role of the conductor is really the uh, being a recreative artist. Mm-hmm. And, and it's our job to recreate and, and bring the music to life um, with a complete understanding of what the composer's intentions were after, you know, tons of study of the music, of the composer, of the time period, for example, that it was written. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that can be uh, something that begs explanation for people as well. Yeah. well that's, that's, that's fascinating. And yeah, I, I imagine that people are pretty stunned when they, when you tell them what you do, especially musically, um, because it's not often that they would meet someone that does something like that, but that, that is fascinating. So would you like in conducting since you're not actually, in, in this case, you're not the one creating the music, would you, would you liken it to almost being the paintbrush for the artist? So the artist created the vision, but then everything about how it's executed with the strokes, with the technique, with the bristles, would you, are you the paintbrush? Paintbrush is an interesting analogy, I think. One of my conducting teachers actually used to, if you remember, we don't do this this way anymore, but... Uh, a long time ago, of course, when uh, photography was, uh, you know, when people would take pictures, you would have the negative of the mm-hmm. of, of yes. the picture. And so my teacher actually kind of referred to the music or what the composer wrote as being the negative. And it was my job as the conductor to develop that negative. And so you can bring out this color, a little bit of that color. If you don't do it right, it might turn out overexposed where Mm -hmm. it doesn't turn out right Mm -hmm. or things seem off balance. So I do think it is similar to a paintbrush, the analogy that you use there. Um, Another way to look at it might be also um, one of the things that I try to do before I begin any performance as I walk out on stage, stand on the podium, and before I give the first beat of music uh, to the orchestra, I try to completely perceive myself to be empty of everything, both mentally, physically, um, just completely being an empty vessel and essentially letting the music pour into that. So I really become hopefully the vessel for the music and to communicate the music that will then bring it to life with the orchestra. But it's that act of really making sure that you're completely empty. And that means there's no nerves. There's no stage fright. There's no Mm -hmm. distractions. If there's a baby that Mm -hmm. just cried or someone coughed, it's, it's completely finding that stillness and the emptiness 
which makes room for the music to happen. That's that's a great analogy. Thank you for that. I just I sticking with the with the painting theme, you become yep. that white canvas. Yep, and now you're right. gonna portray the art, right? Now mm-hmm. you're gonna convey that. That's that's wonderful. Tell me a little bit about, you know, how you prepare for a particular piece, what you do mentally, what you do physically, some of the activities you incorporate to best execute the particular work that you're studying and you want to communicate. I know you mentioned right before the night of the performance, how you empty yourself, but what about before that emptying? I would imagine there's a lot of pouring into. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that can start months, even longer. I mean, there are pieces that I've not yet conducted that I hope to conduct one day that I've certainly even spent years coming back to studying, looking at. So there does tend to be that kind of cumulative effect of just all of the time that you uh, hear the piece. If you go see a piece of see a performance of it. Um, what things stick with you, and then how do you maybe carry that into a performance you might do, even though that performance may be five years later. Mm. You know, so mm-hmm. there there is kind of like just a long term scope to it. But um, usually, my preparation for most things um, happens months beforehand, um, and so that can be. Um, Involved in the way of just uh, studying again, knowing the composer, understanding what was going on in the composer's life at that time, what was going on in the world at that time, um, what are the social issues of the day, what are, what was the environment that the music is coming out of. Um, sometimes the music is directly related to that. Sometimes the music can be seemingly unrelated to that, but even that creates a framework for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say musically, uh, really spending time learning. This is one of the challenges of being a conductor and something that drew me in early on in, in my career was the fact that it demands of you to learn every single person's part. It's not just enough to learn. I, you know, I played viola, I'm a violist. I played uh, that part for years and years, and I love doing that, but that's one small piece of a larger picture. And so um, I think working through something, learning it on that granular level is very rewarding. Um, and that's really where I think a s- true sense of interpretation starts to take root is from that understanding of the piece. Um, and then you said physically. I think, you know, uh, recently you were at the performance. I conducted uh, Mahler's Fifth Symphony. Wonderful. It's, it's one of the most gargantuan pieces of music in the orchestral <laughs> repertoire. <laughs> Indeed. And um, there is literally a stamina I- issue. You have to plan ahead. Uh, I remember even at the first rehearsal, trying to get through the gigantic scherzo in the middle of that symphony and uh, just at the first rehearsal thinking, okay, now I've done it. Uh, now I, I mean, it, it, it was surprising even to me that sure. it was as physically demanding as it was in the moment because normally I don't really struggle with that side of things, but when you're doing these large and longer works, sure. uh, you do have to have like a physical plan. So you have to know when can you be reserved in your gestures, when to save things, when to uh, essentially not get in the way of the musicians mm-hmm. and to allow more space for the music to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when do you really want to save those gestures, those physical movements for those really key moments of impact that you want to have a big climax or a big, the peak of a big crescendo or something like that. So, um, and also I would just say every piece has its own quirks, just like every composer does too. Right. So your physical gestures should change and adapt. I mean, the way that I would conduct Bach or Mozart 
something light is very different than how I would conduct a Mahler symphony. Sure. Um, and yes, there are commonalities amongst them, but I think just understanding how to physically translate that into the music is, yeah. is an interesting process. So what you're saying essentially is you have to be very uh, deliberate with f- physical expressions. You obviously have to be very intellectually engaged, but on top of all that, emotionally, you're being stirred up or you know um, quieted by all the dynamics in the music. And what I love about classical music in its many forms is how dynamic it is Mm -hmm. you know it's 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 very often not just a linear line because there's just so much going on and and that's and you are basically you're in charge that evening of all those nuances of just bringing them all you know out and i i think that's fascinating so for those of you who thought uh is is a conductor um you know necessary there's your answer, folks. Yes, very much necessary. Um, so stay tuned. We're going to discuss a little bit about how Matthew got on this journey, why he chose it, and then we're going to ask him some interesting questions as he reflects on uh, on where he is now and where he was in the uh, journey of conducting. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to the SoundQuest podcast. SoundQuest would like to thank Jackson Creative. For more information, visit thejacksoncreative.com. So we're back, and we're going to discuss a little bit about just how you got here. I'd love to hear just a brief overview of, you know, you say you were a viola player. You were obviously uh, enjoying that. It's obviously very rewarding. But what made you drop the bow and pick up the uh, conducting baton? Wow, tough question. Um, You know. Sorry. No, it's okay. (laughs) It's okay. I mean, this is why we're here, right? Um, yeah, I think, again, there was a different type of challenge. I mean, I had spent my my years growing up learning music, studying music, playing music. Um, and without a doubt, that has plenty of challenges for anyone to, to do that and to really seriously pursue it. But um, it w- really wasn't until the one of the first times that I opened up a full score uh, and looked at the different instruments and the way that the composer had laid out the score... Um, that it became very evident to me at that moment how much I did not know about music, how mm. much uh, of, of the picture I had not seen the full picture yet. And so I was really fascinated by the score, actually, when I first started, just kind of trying to understand how these different puzzle pieces fit together. Mm. Um, one thing that the listeners may or may not know is that um, certain instruments read in different clefs, you know, so you think about a, a, the high sounding instruments like a flute or a violin read in treble clef, the low sounding instruments, a cello or a tuba read in bass clef. There are other clefs in the middle that we have to be able to use. Um, and there are different schools of thought on that, but um some of the instruments also transpose. If you you know you have trumpet in B flat, clarinet in B flat. Well, how does that all work as a string player? I had never known that because all of our instruments for stringed instruments are in concert pitch, which means that the note that you see on the page is the same note that you hear when it's played. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas some of the woodwinds and some of the brass instruments are transposing instruments, so there's a different process. This was totally foreign to me at the beginning. And so I had to uh, learn really quickly how to utilize these different clefts. Mm. Um, And that's, again, I had a teacher that was a little bit more of like an old school approach uh, that uses that used those those different clefts. Um, 
Some people do it a little bit differently, but I am one of those people that believe using those clefts are the, the best way to do it. The reason is, is because you then can read fluently a certain line mm. of music. You're not actually having to transpose each note by a certain interval to understand what's being played, but you're essentially just reading it fluently in a different clef. And hopefully it doesn't sound too uh, confusing sure, <laughs> to, no, to the no, listener. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to, trying to simplify it as best I can. Oh, you're but, doing a great job. But it was just, it's, it, it was that type of experience that kind of, I think, opened my eyes to the many things that I had not been exposed to in music, despite the fact that I had years and years of experience mm-hmm. studying it and playing it. And it, it, it was a huge challenge. And uh, I'm one of those people that I like, a, I like a challenge. Interesting. <laughs> so would you say that you were almost operating in one room of the house and then you stepped into the hallway and said, wait a minute, there's a whole house to explore. There's all these other rooms. There's all parts of the house I'd never seen before. Maybe even at some point stepping, it would be the equivalent of having being in one room of the house and you've never stepped outside and never even seen the house before. Wow. So it was to using that analogy, carrying it one step further, I think. But as a conductor, you know, you're getting this 360 view. You're getting an overhead bird's eye view. You're getting yeah. in the house, the different rooms, the yeah. different the different pathways throughout the house that you can take. Um, and some would turn yeah. around and run right back in the room and you ran right t- through the house. Foolishly. <laughs> foolishly. Yes. I would say, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that was a, another thing I had possibly working in my favor early on in the process, which was a complete sense of naivete, completely being naive to, what is it actually, uh, what does it mean to be a conductor from a career standpoint? Yeah. What does that really mean to do that professionally? I think we all know, you know, what it means to just kind of stand up and wave your arms around to a Sousa march or something like that. But to really uh, do the job, as you said, 24 yeah. seven, uh, lots of different skills. Required. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's, that's a fascinating, um, just, insight into how you kind of came to where you are now. So given that we just discussed, you know, conducting and kind of what led you to embrace this uh, musical expression, uh, since you were already in, in, you were already creating music, you were already part of the, uh, um, the musical scene and, and already probably very fluent on your instrument, I imagine. So you're still very proficient on the yep. viola, correct? Yep. I love, I love playing. I think it's very important to continue playing actually, because um, one of the things that I think some conductors lose sight of as they stop playing on what the, whatever their primary instrument would have been uh, is that, for me, I think you see a disconnect with tempo choices. Mm, okay. There is something that I think is very important to keep in mind about just what is physically required of a musician to produce a sound sure. on one of these instruments. Sure. There's a certain way that the instrument kind of breathes uh, and helps the music breathe what what type of um time and tension does it take to produce a sound and um yeah i think as a conductor when you stop playing your instrument and you only conduct if totally exclusively i think oftentimes you see tempos either begin to get too fast, faster than musicians can really execute it, or sometimes too slow where phrases are dying. And so it's just keeping track of that in, in a natural way is yeah. important. 
what I find fascinating about the fact that you do that and still desire to do it is that it really speaks volumes to why you're doing it because you're doing it for the music. Yeah. The music is first not the office. The office is a is something you desire to do and you're doing it, but the music comes first. Like you're staying true to your first love. Yeah, I, and it's funny you say that because we haven't had that conversation, but I do often refer to it as my first love. I was like, I, I don't want to lose sight of that. Um, in some weird way, it's like a lot of musicians, uh, we, we put uh, the composer Johann Sebastian Bach on a little bit of a pedestal. We A lot of musicians kind of feel like he is... Uh, really the root of a lot of our symphonic tradition, of course. And so I look at my instrument in a similar way. I think that is really the root of, of me as a musician. And it's very important to maintain that and the ability to do that. It, it always is good uh, as a leader, I think, also to remember what it feels like to be in the other person's shoes. Absolutely. And so just as being someone who is responsible for leading an orchestra, just knowing kind of what the experience is like and what the players are potentially dealing with, struggling with, going going through as they're attempting to play the music, it's really great to always have that experience and insight into what the player is experiencing. That's a fascinating approach. Um, so I do have one final question for you. If you had a chance to speak to a younger version of yourself, what advice would you give him about conducting? To put you on the spot a little bit. Yeah, that's, that is the question that puts me on the spot. But, you know, it's uh, honestly, the first response that comes to mind is I think I would tell the younger version of myself to do many of the same things. I really feel like... Um, staying focused on what the goal is, is hugely important. Um, not being, uh, discouraged by rejection. There's a tremendous amount of rejection in the music world. There's a tremendous amount of rejection in the conducting world. Uh, you cannot let that define you. And I think really staying true to who you are, what your, your passions are with, when it comes to music, um, and trying to basically find your voice. So I would say to a younger version of myself, keep finding your voice, keep gravitating towards the things that you love to do. And of course, keep working very, very hard at your craft mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. It's a, it really truly is a lifelong pursuit. Um, I still am somewhat uncomfortable with the term maestro, <laughs> you okay. know, because, uh, I think it's, it, it can be a tricky term because okay. of the connotations of it. And also, frankly, uh, it's a title that I believe is, uh, implies that the person has earned such a high level of respect from that term that they are truly a master of the music. Okay. Um, so it's almost like it's a lifelong pursuit. It, mm -hmm. I, per, I perceive it to be a thing that if I am fortunate enough to still be conducting, I, I hope to be conducting into my elder later years. Mm -hmm. Um, and I imagine that I will still be learning new things. I mean, yeah. it's just keeping that fresh approach and, and truly being a lifelong learner. Mm -hmm. So maestro to you, when you, when you hear that term, you associate with grandmaster, you associate with someone that's really put in the time. And I won't say, I won't use the term arrived because we use, yeah, we hear that term sure. so much land the plane already, but someone that's arrived, but, and has traveled, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. I understand that there's a desire to, 
for people to use that term. And you, yes, I accept it when it, when it happens, I don't correct people and say, please don't sure. call me that, you know, I sure. want people to call me what, what they feel comfortable calling me. But, um, yeah, for me just internally, I think it's a term that I, even though some other people may call me maestro for me personally, it's a term that I feel like I'm constantly aspiring to mm-hmm. not necessarily a term that I've achieved yet. That's don't know that I ever really well will. said. That's really, really well said. Well, what a fascinating um, discussion with music director Matthew Troy. Thank you so much for kind of opening up your world to us, telling us a little bit about your process. Uh, I mean, I hope, m- my hope would be everyone that hears this and goes to a performance would uh, would look at the conductor differently after this, after hearing this discussion, or would ask more questions and maybe reach out to um, a conductor of a symphony. And and um, and for those of you who are maybe want to put down your bow and start conducting, that they would pursue that and they would uh, have courage and take heart by uh, by your endeavors and by just your story. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. Well, that concludes our first episode of SoundQuest. SoundQuest would like to give a special thanks to everyone who contributed technically and creatively to this first episode. Special thanks to Kelly Swindell of the Western Piedmont Symphony, Alan Jackson of Jackson Creative, Brett Bradshaw, William Michael Johnson, and Kelsey Laggy. We would like to dedicate this first episode of SoundQuest to Roberto Miguel Miranda and the loving memory of Boo Swindell. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on the SoundQuest podcast.